0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts.
2: Very special guest joining us today on the program. He is the senior and founding pastor of Grace Church of the Bay, Dr. Roger Chen. Dr. Chen holds a bachelor's degree from UCLA, a master of divinity from the master's seminary, and a doctor of ministry degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And Dr. Chen, a delight to have you back on the program with us. So Good to be here. Thank you. You recently preached a sermon On the topic of a six step program for worldly addiction. Now, beyond wondering what happened to the other six, since it's usually 12, (laughs) I wanted to spend a couple of moments using it as sort of a springboard to our discussion today. You know, the word warns us about being. In the world, but not of the world. And yet, there seems over time, and I think this has in particular been highlighted over the last many years, especially during the COVID season, where it almost seems as if the church, as opposed to trying to lead the way, lead the world, set the example, almost at some levels feels like it's trying to kind of get in line behind the world. Now, that's not meant by any means to be a blanket accusation against all of churches or all of the body of Christ. But on an ever-increasing basis, we read stories about lower and lower church attendance, or in particular, Gen Xers, Gen Wires, who identify themselves as having no religious faith whatsoever. Give us some insights from your viewpoint as to why it seems as if there is such a degree of what I'll call worldly creep coming into the church.
3: I think the way you said that is exactly right. We are in the world. And by God's grace, he does allow us to use and enjoy things of the world, whether it's the the necessities of life, having a job, paying bills so that we can have electricity and water. Uh, but within the world, there are so many movements. There are so many things that are surrounding us. For the most part, I think Christians go to secular jobs. So they're around people who do the proverbial gossiping at the water cooler. They're they're upset. They're trying to save. To, they're, they're stabbing in the back. They're... Uh, doing all these things to get ahead to get the things of the world and when we are around that all the time there's a tendency to be conformed to the world as we're uh, warned against in romans chapter 12 and i think in a lot of ways we have forgotten the dangers of the world we have forgotten uh, for example second timothy 3 2 through 5 lists all of these descriptions of what the world will become and it begins with men will be lovers of self and we read them we say well that's horrible that's evil because we understand the the pride of man and the sinfulness of of arrogance but things like lovers of self has become almost hidden in a noble agenda or noble agendas in our society right fighting for what we perceive as justice um thinking that what we are doing is morally good and so we're kind of deceived into thinking, well, look, they're, they're trying to help these people. They're trying to do what makes them happy. And how can we be against that? And so there's kind of this compromise uh, because we know what the Word of God says. We start believing what the world says, that we're too judgmental or we're, we're too strict or whatever it may be. And perhaps even well-meaning Christians wanting to not be too offensive with the gospel, trying to water things down, maybe inadvertently to get people to hear the scriptures or come to church. And, and it's just this kind of amalgam of, of different things that we have to be careful of because we are sinners and we tend towards these worldly things that that the world has to offer.
2: I think that's an important key that you make there to be mindful that while yet sinners saved by grace, we are still nevertheless in the flesh. And we are tempted likewise by all temptations that are out there. Paul talked about having to die daily to the flesh. And I wonder if part of the issue, Dr. Chen, is is a sense that changes in our society and technology, I think, for example, the influence of social media, that surrounds us and inundates us with messages literally 24-7. I mean, at least at a time at midnight back in the day when I was a kid, television stations went off the air. So the ability of them to continue to push thoughts and ideas and ads your way finally ceased when the station signed off the air with the national anthem at midnight. Now it follows us everywhere we go. And if we're not inviting it into our homes, we check our cell phone hundreds of times a day And inevitably, messages are being delivered that would suggest that if we get this car, we'll be more popular. If we buy this brand of clothing, we'll be a lot more happier. It's almost as if we are being inundated to such a degree that it's a real struggle for believers to try to even not only keep up with what's false and what's true, but to even push back against all of this. To Maybe we're seeing a point where you think perhaps more people are saying, if you can't beat them, join them.
3: I think that's definitely part of it. We are, as you said, we're inundated and even the temptation, not the temptation, the, the trying to discipline ourselves to maybe not look at our phone as much or just I'm getting on my computer to check my email and that's it. But so often we find ourselves str- strain, and we go to social media and of course there's those ads and it's, it's just overload because there's a, I think there's a secondary problem there in that we have some form of entertainment in our pockets all the time. And so we don't stop to think. You know, I was telling my kids just earlier this week, when I was growing up, you wanted to watch TV, you turn on the TV, if there's nothing you like, then you turn off the TV and go play in the yard or you go read. Where today, most kids don't even know what live TV is because they get whatever show they want, when they want it, and it feeds this self-entitlement. It feeds this uh just I'm important because I can do what I want when I want it, I can have it my way, and I don't have to wait for anything. I shouldn't have to wait for anything. And I see this bleeding into areas where people do have to wait. For example, in line at the, the checkout at the grocery store or whatever it is, and more and more I'm noticing people are getting frustrated, they're impatient. They're yelling at waiters and waitresses. They're yelling at people checking out their groceries because they're too slow. And I think this is all part of it. It's feeding our desire and our, our entitlement that I get it right now. And if I'm uncomfortable at all, then there's a problem because I'm supposed to be comfortable. And then all those ads that you mentioned come in and say, well, you want to be comfortable you want to look good. You want to feel good. You want to be happy. This is what you need. And I think a big thing in our society is what is a need, what is a necessity, and what is a luxury. And I think there's it, it, there's gray areas. It's it's hard to say. Is a is a smartphone a luxury or necessity? I think even maybe just five six years ago, people could argue that it's a luxury. But that might be hard to argue today.
2: And I think certainly if you survey any 16-year-old, they're going to tell you, I need this like I need my right arm. (laughs) Right, exactly. If you've just tuned in, my guest today is Dr. Roger Chen, founder and senior pastor of Grace Church of the Bay Area. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our discussion in just a moment.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Welcome back to The Conversation. Pastor Dr. Roger Chen with us today, Senior Pastor of Grace Church of the Bay Area, located in San Mateo. Pastor Chen, let's pick up the conversation where we left off just a moment ago. You know, you you mentioned about stopping to think, which led me to ponder a broader issue, and that is what's happened to critical thinking you know the, the the sense today that there seems to be discernment on the endangered species list people oftentimes and i think this is true both inside and outside of the church that t- tend to kind of be in a siloed environment or an environment where it's easy for them to not think so they just accept whatever comes their way at face value sometimes that information may be based on truth and based on biblical values More often than not, on an increasing basis, it isn't, and yet it's easy to not to bother to think. Let somebody else do the thinking for me. And I suppose with that, you know, we we start to wander into very dangerous territories. I mean, Scripture exhorts us to test the spirits, try the spirits, and see if they be of God, to exercise sound biblical judgment, to use God's word as the measuring tool, the yardstick of. Is it true or is it not true? And if it fits into scriptural framework, that's one thing. But sadly, these days, more often, and we're finding this even within those who identify as quote-unquote biblical believers, that they're willing to seemingly stretch the terms of engagement, find the the biblical yardstick less and less important. I mean, I even ran into a case here over the recent Easter season with a, a listener to my program debating the veracity or the necessity of Christ's literal resurrection, stipulating that, well, you know, it, it, it could be figurative, but it, in the end, it really doesn't matter. He died for our sins, so on and so forth. And so, quite apparently abandoning one of the fundamental pillars of our faith and the teaching of God's word. Do you find this to be disturbing?
3: Absolutely. And I think the answer is very simple, is the truth, the word of God. How can you fit life, everyday decisions, planning into a biblical framework if you don't truly believe the Bible? if you don't believe it's true it's foundational it's fundamental it's it is what gives us the rules for living it guides all of our decisions but if you are told or if you believe that everything is subjective then of course everyone's going to do what's right in their own eyes everyone's going to have a different perspective and we see this in secular society now everyone's fighting over different things and protesting and thinking that their way is right because there is no objective truth uh, that they can go back to. It's like telling a child to figure out a calculus problem, but you've always told him that, well, one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two. So they don't have the foundations. How are they going to make the important decisions of life if they can't go back to anything that is true? And, and your example, therefore, someone who is a professing believer to deny the very, essence of who jesus christ is the very facets of the gospel message the basics of the gospel message well then everything else is going to fall apart uh, but as someone who lives in this culture man that's very enticing because i get to say and believe what i want to say and believe and if you don't like it well then you're just intolerant then that's no good and this is a major problem especially when it leaks into the church.
2: And, and, you know, to that degree, uh, I think it's, it's particularly disturbing because while it's one thing to talk about the impact on salvation, which is nothing light to be sure, but then to think about the potentiality of this sort of fluidity in truth that can permeate all of society and then, I think, impact things in such a fashion that the very fabric, the very foundation of society could fall apart. I mean, for example, we we generally ex- accept as a given truth that taking of another one's life is not appropriate. And yet, not only do we see it happen all the time, almost in a flippant sense, I mean, back in the day, if somebody cuts you off on the freeway, You might raise your hand to them. Today, somebody is just as likely to raise a gun to them in response, which kind of goes back to that sense of meism that you talked about a moment ago. But isn't there a broader danger here that if we continue to see the erosion of truth and exchange that for everybody can have their own truth and we can all have the same different truth but all be truth at the same time, that we run an even larger risk of seeing the entirety of society unravel?
3: I think that is very true and it is why for secular society tolerance is so important it's it's almost like a child who knows he's done something wrong and he starts making excuses and he just kinds of you know weaves this tangled web of lies but what's happening in society is well if that's truth to you then that's okay you you have to have tolerance to cover up the fact that everyone is quote-unquote right and that's okay and you see why there's such intolerance of a conservative Bible-believing Christians is because we demand, because God says so, that our truth is the truth and everyone needs to submit to it. And you can't be tolerant of that. You can be tolerant of everything else, but not that, because that tells people what is definitively right or wrong, and they, they want nothing to do with that.
2: There used to be at one time, and certainly in the memory of all of us that are of the baby boomer generation, for example, recall a time when the, if not embracing at least the acceptance of what I'll call for the sake of our conversation, the Judeo-Christian ethic, it seemed to be more Widespread. Now, that doesn't necessarily go to suggest that everybody read the word, everybody went to church, but at least there was a sense of tolerance, acceptance. If you were a person of faith, you didn't necessarily run the risk of being made fun of. Uh, today, it almost seems as if it's open season on Christians. And and while I don't say this is a woe is me kind of scenario, I have to wonder: is this just the natural progression from a um, from a prophetic? Standpoint in terms of where we are in the timeline of eschatology, or is there a degree to which we're kind of responsible ourselves? And 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 just before you answer, Doctor Chen, let me let me preface your response by saying we've seen this paradigm shift in certain aspects aspects of mainline Christendom, where the unadulterated teaching of God's word has been exchanged for happy sermons. It might start with a biblical quote and then it goes off the rails into what essentially becomes nothing more than an Anthony Robbins feel-good success motivation workshop. Uh, We're finding more and more churches that are afraid of driving off parishioners and the dollars that they bring. So speaking to truth regarding sin, sanctification, salvation, things of this sort seems to be kind of, well, like, like talking about abolishing social security is sort of the third rail for politics. Talking about Sin, separation from God, eternal damnation is the punishment for that separation outside of the bonds of Christ on an increasing basis, even within the church, seems to be sort of the third rail topic we don't want to touch because, after all, we don't want to offend anybody. Your thoughts?
3: I think it's both. I see in scripture uh, a promise that things will get worse and worse until the Lord returns. Um, but I think that what is happening within churches the feel good churches the the wanting to get people into the doors and so we compromise the gospel this is a major problem and this is adding fuel to the fire you know sometimes when I walk around you you walk by a Starbucks or whatever it is and you know in the window they have a sign that is saying that they they agree with the the latest movement you know we saw a lot of these really come up and and gain some momentum during covid and i have no doubt that they really believe that that they're accepting of whatever they say they accept in the window but ultimately i truly believe that's a business decision they put those signs in the window for the sake of getting more business whether they believe it or not whether the manager uh, who's on site at that time believes it or not and i think too many churches have taken that same approach They perhaps in their doctrinal statement hidden in a drawer somewhere in the pastor's office, they believe these truths, but you wouldn't know it from how they run their church, from their philosophy of ministry or their preaching. And I think they have good intentions, right? Let's get more people in the door and then we can teach them the truth. But the problem is if you get them in the door by giving them a watered down gospel or no gospel at all, this is what they come for. So why would they want to hear when you change your tune and start teaching them the truth, which unfortunately never happens at all? And so this is this is a a big problem. And yes, as believers, uh, we are we are adding to the problem.
2: I mentioned earlier in my opening remarks that um, you have your. um Divinity degree from Master's Seminary. In fact, you serve for a time on staff at uh, Grace Church at, at, at John MacArthur's Church down in, in Southern California, Grace Community Church in Simi Valley. Um, and, you know, even with the name Grace, people might tend to think, well, it's, it's about the good news of the gospel, which it is. But it's always struck me that if we talk about God's mercy, God's grace, the sacrifice of his son on the cross on our behalf, God essentially saying, I I recognize that you cannot keep my commandments and there aren't enough pure, blemish-free sheep on the planet to atone for the sins of mankind. And so I'm going to offer the ultimate sacrifice that will satisfy my justice for all men, for all mankind, for all time. And it strikes me that the gospel message, that that passion, that mercy, that tenderness that God shows towards his creation through the sacrifice of his son Jesus on our behalf is a message that is only partly valid in the sense that God's message of love and grace only means something in the context of God's righteousness and judgment. I, am I right? I mean, if, if you take out the righteousness and judgment of God, then what does grace really mean?
3: Yeah, there's that classic example of saying, well, you read the old Testament, but I don't think God is that God. anymore. Like God is not a God of judgment anymore. God is not a God of wrath anymore. Uh, we're in a different time. He's different now. And and not not in a condescending way. I, I I truly tell these people, well, you're you're talking about a different God than I am. You're talking about a different God than the God of the Bible, because that's not God. Who who is God? How do we know who or what God is? Because of what the Scriptures say, and what the Scriptures say about His character, and His character doesn't change. And so, absolutely, you take away ideas of righteousness uh, and justice, and Him being the Judge then everything falls apart. That is not the God of the Bible. And even logically, the gospel doesn't make sense without those truths.
2: And yet, sadly, we, we try to oftentimes preach a gospel that is devoid of that balance. And, and as a result, is it any wonder that there are ever increasing numbers of individuals, even some that might have had some exposure to the church, that look at it and say, you know what, thank you, but no thank you. I'm, I'm going to find my own way. If you've just tuned in, my guest today is Dr. Roger Chen, founder and senior pastor of Grace Church of the Bay Area. We'll take a brief timeout, come back to more of our discussion in just a moment.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Welcome back to the conversation. Pastor Dr. Roger Chen with us today, senior pastor of Grace Church of the Bay Area, located in San Mateo. Pastor Chen, I'd like to return to our discussion, and I have to wonder in terms of the... The sense of responsibility that we as the church have uh, for that misconception, for for in in a sense helping to to uh, promote that idea by watering down the scripture, is the Lord going to hold us accountable?
3: Absolutely, I believe He is, and I, I especially believe He is going to hold teachers accountable, teachers of the word, uh, whether assigned or self proclaimed. James chapter three. Uh, that very well-known passage about taming the tongue the dangers of speech uh, when you look at the beginning of that passage that section the context is within those who are teaching the word of god um i believe it applies to all believers but he first addresses let not many of you become teachers because of the struggles we have with the tongue i've told my congregation uh, more than once, a, a couple things, and I, I truly believe this. I want to say this is what defines my philosophy of ministry, but it definitely comes out of it. The first is that my opinion doesn't matter, and especially under COVID, a lot of people wanted my opinions on, on kind of extra biblical things like mass and vaccines, and and trust me, I, I have opinions. I have very strong opinions. But when it comes to me as a representative of God teaching his word, it really doesn't matter. And the second thing I've told my congregation is the day that I stop preaching the word of God to you, you need to get rid of me. You need to fire me. Because if my job as your pastor, yes, uh, yeah, I'm a friend, I'm I'm a brother in Christ, absolutely. But in the context of our church, I'm your pastor. I'm the preacher, which by definition means I'm going to bring you God's word. And when I stray from that, and I would imagine, I would, I I hope that would never happen. But as I've seen it, when that does happen, the the pastors are well-meaning. They don't think there's a problem with it. And so they wouldn't expect anything bad to happen. And so in that situation... Lord forbid, but if it happens, I tell my church, you need to get rid of me and you find someone who's going to teach you the word of God because that's what
2: I'm here for. And at the end of the day, it is the sustenance that we receive out of the Word that is the only thing that's going to carry us through and and prepare us for life at the next plane. You know, we, we have to be mindful that we're just passers through here, and it's not all of that long. So uh, making sure that everything that we do counts for Christ, I think, is critically important. And, and it also leads us to another important point, I think, that comes out of exactly what you just said, and that is that there's a lot of talk these days, and I, and I hear it quite often amongst believers Um, They tend to get riled up about what they read in the news, what they see going on politically, and there's an awful lot of talk about my rights, my rights, my rights. And and certainly, I I have great respect for the Constitution and for the Founding Fathers and the, the incredible vision that they had to establish this nation and the principles, biblical principles, upon which it was founded. I'm just fearful that in all of our talking about what our rights are, we're beginning to, on an increasing basis, forget what our responsibilities are. To go and preach the word, to make disciples, to lead others to Jesus Christ, to to love our God with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul, love our neighbor as ourselves, and of course the great commandment. And yet that seems to be, at least in some arenas, on the wane, what do we do to help stem that tide? How how can we have an influence to reverse that and and, and bring back a greater sense of biblical foundation, not to just what we believe and what we teach, but how we live and order our lives?
3: We have a lot of freedoms. Uh, Many people would call them blessings, and I, I use that carefully, and this is why, is because there are a lot of Christians around the world who don't have what we have in the United States whether it's running water 24/7 or just freedom of religion things like that. And so I think we need to be careful we don't confuse American liberty and rights with Christian liberty and rights. And it goes down to what you said, it, it is the responsibility and privilege of the of the Christian to do what we are called to in the scriptures. I think a lot of it comes down to perspective because we have so much in the U.S. that we easily complain about things that are just complete luxuries. You know, a a tear in your expensive uh, luxury handbag or whatever it is, your cell phone is a little slow. You know, you have the internet at your fingertips and we complain that it takes three seconds to load instead of the normal one. And and we used to,
2: when we were kids, we have to go down to the library of all places to get information. (laughs)
3: Well, if you were, you know, if you, if you had wealthy parents, they would buy you a set of encyclopedias, right? Which, <laughs> which were out of date within a year, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think as believers, we need to be reminded that God has given a, us a lot in this country. And so we use those things for his glory. They're a means to an end. And I think too often American Christians, I think especially here in the Bay Area, because it is such a wealthy area uh, of, of the world, of the nation, Uh, We need to remember that these things, this stuff, that's not the goal. That's not the end. They're a means to an end. Your job is a means to an end, to pay the bills, to be a good steward, certainly. But uh, God has put you in that place, no matter how difficult your coworkers may be, for example, so that you will have those people to witness to. It puts you in that difficult family situation to witness, to be a testimony, to be an example of Christ's love and and mercy and grace. And so when we get so caught up in the things of the world, then of course, we're going to forget what our responsibilities are to the world, the unbelieving world, to God, to our fellow believers. And I think Uh, We need to remind ourselves of the gospel. We need to remind ourselves where we came from. Read through Ephesians chapter 2. You were like these people, uh, completely sinful. And we need to remind ourselves that everything else is extra except for the one primary right that we have, and that is the right to be condemned by God. Everything else aside from that is God's grace.
2: Let's pivot for moments to talking about what God is doing at Grace Church of the Bay. We mentioned that you were a founding pastor there. Give us a bit of a snapshot as to what God is doing in and through that ministry.
3: We're a church plant. Uh, We started in October of 2011, and we really, we didn't branch off of another church. We just kind of worked from the ground up with four people committed. I say four and a half, because we had a baby at the time, and so there were so. My wife and I and our oldest son and and another couple that were committed and uh, the Lord has just uh, done what he says in his word. He's going to honor his word. He's going to honor the preaching of the word. And it's grown uh, to a place where we are a very uh, diverse uh, congregation in terms of ethnicities as well as ages. And uh, we are committed to expository preaching, verse by verse preaching of the word of God. Uh, we don't get up caught up in whether it's secular or even within the church, different trends. We try to stick with what the scriptures say, and uh, the Lord has blessed that. And over and over again, we find people who are coming. And uh, as you mentioned, there's, you know, I come from John MacArthur's church, and naturally, there are people who find our church because they are looking for a graduate of the Master Seminary. And there are many in our church who, when they first walk in our doors, have never heard of John MacArthur. And they hear the preaching and uh, maybe they've, they're unbelievers. We have uh, several people who, uh, in their adult life walked away from the Lord after being raised in a Christian home, going to church and have realized that they need to get back to the church, get back to the Lord. We have other people who have just become disillusioned with their, their old churches for whatever reason. Sometimes they don't know why. Sometimes they, you know, it's well, they're not preaching the word anymore. Sometimes they're just something they can't pinpoint. Uh, But they come to to our church and they hear uh, the word of God expounded and they something just clicks because they say, well, that sounds right. And so we are a congregation of people who are passionate about uh, the word of God and living out the word of God. And I think that's so important because uh, there's a, a danger of just preaching sound theology and it just goes in our heads and we become judgmental. And we condemn every other church and things like that. Uh, but I'm so thankful by God's grace that our, our our church is filled with people that don't just love the word, accept the word, uh, but they're living out the word. And, you know, my my job, my goal is not to make people happy. <laughs> it's not to make them sad. Uh, but oftentimes people will leave and they say, man, that that one really hurt. And again, I can, like I said before, I can rest assured that it wasn't my witty words or my opinion. It was the Word of God and the Holy Spirit convicting them. And that just brings me so much joy and uh, brings brings our people joy as well.
2: And at the end of the day, we talk a lot about the importance of li- reading the Word, and, and that is penultimate to be sure. But it becomes largely of none effect if you read it but no know, know how to apply it or don't know how to live it and so living the word becomes the ultimate goal here and um, as we mentioned if you're new to the ch- Bay Area looking for a church home maybe just looking for a new church home circumstances in your family have changed let me invite you to check out Grace Church of the Bay very conveniently located on the peninsula they meet there at San Mateo High School that's at 789 East Poplar Avenue in San Mateo take right off the popular, uh, Poplar Avenue exit off of 101 southbound and you'll find it there or third if you're coming in the opposite way and Again, you can find them on the web at gracebayarea.org. That's gracebayarea.org. They meet Sunday mornings for worship at 11 a.m. Details also available by calling them directly at area code 650-532-3444. That's 650-532-3444. Dr. Roger Chen, whose broadcast, by the way, can be heard on this station. We invite you to check out our program guide for complete details. Dr. Chen, thank you so much for spending some time with us today.
3: Oh, thanks so much for having me. And now
0: back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: National Defense Authorization Act. The bill gives the president the authority to indefinitely imprison American citizens without a court hearing, both domestically and abroad, bringing the battlefield to the homeland, all in the name of anti-terrorism. Is it ultimately perhaps anti-constitutional? Not just unconstitutional, but anti-constitutional? With some insights on this story and what appears to be a significant degree to which our rights as Americans are eroding, we're joined now by Fox News senior judicial analyst. Analyst, Judge Andrew Napolitano. He has a new book out entitled, Is It Dangerous to Be Right When the Government is Wrong? The Case for Personal Freedom. And Judge Napolitano, is always great to have you on the program. Oh, nice to be with you, Craig. Thanks for having me. Uh, your reaction to this story, you know, we've been hearing so much about uh, concerns over trying to deal with the uh, parent uh, attacks on American soil by Al Qaeda, as if somehow that the combined forces of the FBI, the ATF, the Judicial Department, on and on the list goes, are not significant enough, enough to deal with terrorism now we're working toward passing bills that literally as i say in the opinion of some would bring the battlefield to us soil and that's
1: the ability to arrest people without charge and incarcerate them without end and keep them from a lawyer and loved ones and visitors and most importantly from a judge and a jury who could possibly feel safer that way but that's what was concocted by the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee at secret closed-door hearings while we were eating turkey and watching football Thanksgiving week. They suddenly uh, sprung this on us on the Monday after Thanksgiving and with minimal debate on the floor of the Senate that would allow the President to declare that the United States of America is a battlefield that includes all 50 states and all uh, territories and commonwealths and permit him to use the military for domestic law enforcement. Now. The federal government has not used the military for domestic law enforcement in this country since 1876 when uh, it was using it for domestic law enforcement in the South in Reconstruction. And one of the provisions that ended the troops in the South, 1876, is uh, 11 years after the Civil War was over was legislation prohibiting the military for this purpose at any time in the future. They're not going to use the military to direct traffic. They're going to use the military to pick up people that the president wants picked up. Just as he had Anwar al Alaki killed by a drone, the president thinks he can arrest people without charges, without evidence, and lock them up and throw away the key. Now, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution directly prohibits this, and says no one shall suffer loss of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Due process of law means charges, a trial, a fair trial, a judge, a jury, a lawyer, and the right to appeal. The president... And members of Congress, this is both parties, this is actually instigated by John McCain, a nominal Republican, believes that they have the authority to do this. It's reprehensible, it won't keep us safer, it'll bring us one step closer to a totalitarian government, it's the type of thing I write about in my book, it is dangerous to be right when the government is wrong.
2: But all of this, Judge, part of this bigger picture of the erosion of our constitutional rights, where so much of this, as I suggested in my opening remarks, is not just simply unconstitutional, but but seems to be working against the Constitution, again, and, and and against every form and fashion of what it is that we have held dear in this country and has made this country different from any other nation on earth. That is the notion that the government does not grant rights, but rather the government is in a position to protect our God-given rights. Now all of a sudden that's changing.
1: Well, the government acts as if our rights come from it, not from our humanity, because the government continuously be- behaves as if, as if it can just turn off our rights. It certainly did with Mr. Al-Awlaki, who notwithstanding uh, his, his his un-American or, or non-American, I should say, sounding name was born in New Mexico. The president decided on the basis of secret evidence that only he and the people to whose confidence he, he in whose confidence he reposes trust saw that this person was so dangerous, he, and the evidence of his behavior was so overwhelming that a trial wasn't needed. When Abraham Lincoln made that argument during the Civil War, while Southern troops were shooting at Northern uh, soldiers and, and, and invading Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court said you can't do that. The Constitution exists for everybody, in good times and in bad. The government just can't declare a person outside the protection of the Constitution. If that were the case, then the Constitution means nothing. And you, Mr. President, took an oath to uphold it. So that's what we're going through right now, Craig. Uh, I, I don't know what President Obama will do with this. And I don't know who will uh, succeed him, whether his successor comes about in January of 2013 or or four years thereafter. It doesn't matter. The framers didn't trust this kind of power in the hands of any individual. And that's why they gave us these guarantees, these protections. If the Congress thinks that it, it can violate its oath to uphold the Constitution by writing away these guarantees, then we have no freedom. But our freedoms are subject to the whims and the fears of Congress.
2: Well, and we live in a day and an age, judges, you know, that we've seen even the president insist that if Congress can't get, quote unquote, the job done, that he will do it for them. As if to suggest that somehow now the executive branch is going to be able to somehow inherit or take on what uniquely had been held as a right of the legislative branch to pass laws.
1: He started a war on his own. Uh, he bombed and killed in Libya while uh, he was in Brazil, and the Congress was on spring break. Did you know the Congress gets a spring break? Well, it does. I thought only college students did. Nevertheless, Congress did nothing to stop them from uh, from doing that. Congress did nothing when he when he killed this uh, American citizen and the guy's sixteen year old son, about whom he admitted he had zero evidence of uh, of criminal uh, behavior or, or immediate uh, or immediate danger. Congress did nothing about it. So Congress, which sometimes acts like a pot. Plant when the president does things that Congress perceives as politically popular, although unconstitutional, or as my friend Craig Roberts says anti-constitutional the congress is just as much to blame for letting the president get away with this as the president is for doing it
2: you know there's an important wake-up call here and and i want to encourage people judge to get a copy of your new book is it dangerous to be right when the government is wrong this notion that you know we we need to decide what do we value more do we value safety or freedom i tell you I, i remember walking down the streets of moscow prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I have to tell you, even at 10, 11 o'clock at night, in very dark streets, you felt eminently safe. You knew somebody with an iron fist was in charge. And the crime rate in Moscow in the middle of the night was practically nothing under Soviet communism. But you also knew that as safe as you were, you had no freedoms whatsoever. Do we really want to live in that kind of environment where we feel safe but have no freedoms Do we, no, to exercise no, in that no, safety? of course.
1: Of course not. Of course we don't. But that's what this government, Republicans and and Democrats is bringing us to. Look, George W. Bush and Barack Obama have frequently argued that their first job is to keep us us safe. They're wrong. Read the Constitution. It tells you what the president's job is. The president's job is to keep us free. If they keep us safe but unfree, they're not doing their job. Period. That's what this book argues.
2: Here's the $64,000 question, Judge. If if Congress is not doing its job, if the president is not doing this job, and we have concerns even about the judicial branch doing theirs, what do we do as American citizens?
1: We have to vote them uh, out of office, or we have to uh, disobey unjust laws. The courageous people who who desegregated segregated lunch counters in the South in the 50s and the 60s broke the law, but those were unjust laws that the legislatures lacked the political will to change, and the courts lacked the intellectual fortitude to change, but but civil disobedience changed them. Here's an example of present-day civil disobedience. The Patriot Act lets federal agents write their own search warrants, something else we could talk about. It's blatantly unconstitutional because the Fourth Amendment says only judges can issue search warrants. When they hand you the search warrant, they tell you you can't tell anybody about it or will arrest you for telling anybody. Guess what? A lot of people who've received these self-written search warrants have been telling people. They're lawyers who have been going into court to challenge them. Guess what federal judges have been doing? Invalidating them. So sometimes it's necessary to be courageous in the face of an unjust law and do the right thing, and freedom will prevail. The other thing to do is to vote out of office anybody who, who enacts legislation that blatantly, directly, and clearly, and profoundly violates the Constitution.
2: Judge Andrew Napolitano, again the new book, Is It Dangerous to Be Right When the Government is Wrong? The Case for Personal Freedom, the book newly published by Thomas Nelson and available through Judge Napolitano's website at Judge JudgeNAP, that's JudgeNAP.com. As always, Your Honor, appreciate having you on the program.
1: Pleasure, Craig. Thanks for having me. Take care now, Judge.